Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, welcome back to New Books in Anthropology, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Adam Bobek, and I'm a PhD candidate in cultural anthropology at the University of Leipzig. I can barely contain my excitement to be talking today to Elizabeth A. Povinelli about her new book, Between Gaia and Ground, Four Axioms of Existence and the Ancestral Catastrophe of Late Liberalism. Professor Povinelli is the Franz Boas Professor of Anthropology at Columbia University. She has written tons of books, including Labor's Lot, Economies of Abandonment, Geontologies, and out this year as well is The Inheritance with Duke University Press. Professor Povinelli is also a founding member of the Karabang Film Collective, and today we'll be discussing Between Gaia and Ground, published in 2021 with Duke University Press. Professor Povinelli, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. So could you talk a little bit about the inspiration for the book? Um, all well, for Between Guy and Ground and really all my writing, all my thinking, all my work really is inevitably uh, inspired by two core relations. Uh, one is, of course, the coming up to 30 years um, I've spent with uh, the indigenous men and women and families who are were born in, were interned in, um, who live in uh, Belyun, which is a small community on a peninsula just on the other side of Darwin in North Australia, and many of whom are members of the Karabing Film Collective. So all my thinking loops through the last 30 years of living and talking and doing all, all sorts of things with them. Uh, the other, the other uh, uh, relations that sit deep behind my thinking and sit with my relations with Bellune come from my family's, my white family's uh, very complex relationship to our ancestral Alpine village, uh, which provides the ground for the inheritance. Um, both of them, uh, but I say, I'd say really when I got to Australia, when I started sitting and talking with men and women at Bellune, 
Um, but both of these sets of relations, I think, have preset me to listen to stories about dispossession in a very particular way. And I think stories about dispossession were once, at least in the, in the academy, associated primarily with settler colonialism. So we think of settler dispossession. But over, wow, the last oh, one worries, one, one date something, but let's say over the last decade, um, we're hearing a lot about white dispossession, right? and we're hearing a lot about um, uh, crazy conspiracies of displacing whites. Um, so I think about their ways, this, 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 this white resentment of replacement and dispossession also through these two frameworks. That is, on the one hand, the, the stories of dispossession that my grandparents spoke of, um, but never spoke of their dispossession in relationship to a system of colonial dispossession into which they slaughtered themselves. So, so the, the really, it, the, my inspiration um, is, is fundamentally rooted in how we think about the legacies of European dispossession in a colonial world, in a black and brown indigenous Atlantic and Pacific. Before we get uh, deeper into the book, there's a point where you talk about typing out uh, sentences on a Eurostar train in December of 2019. And of course, the first thing I thought was, oh, no, COVID is coming. Uh, oh, true. November? Yeah. November 2019? Uh, it says yes, December in the book. Right. Oh, December of 2019. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but my question is, uh, if you could share with us a little bit about how you write, about your writing ritual. Sure. Um, as that example suggests, I have less of a ritual than a practice of writing. I, 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 I write anywhere and I write at any time. Uh, I'm not like, I, I don't need a room or like, I don't need a special room or a special computer or um, any particular sounds in the background. Um, indeed, I, 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 I like absolute silence. If, if I have my preference, I, I write in a soundless environment <laughs> um, because if th there's any sound in the background, I can't hear myself think, or that's not true. If there's any sound in the background, half of me or part of me wants to hear what that sounds saying. So I get distracted. Um, so I really, I'm, 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 I have a bit of an obsessive mind. So the, the mind is always doing its thing and I could be anywhere and suddenly the mind is telling me something. And so whether I really want to or not, 
wherever I am, I sit down and I type it out. Um, it's always, you know, it's, 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 it's always a, also a form of writing that's very visual. I don't know if this is relevant to like, how do I write? Like, um, I write in a visual world, but a visual world inside. So I often see something and then I have to figure out how to turn that image into sentences. So, you know, an image comes as a certain kind of three-dimensional space and it might be moving around and, you know, it might have that little fourth dimension of time going on. Um, but when you write, you have to turn that into a linear form, right? It, what we would call syntax. And, and so I guess that's, that can be one of my greatest obstacles obstacles. Um, and it, it's weird. It's not how do you write in the sense of, do you use a pencil or a pen? Do you, do you type it, then print it and then look at it and then mark it up and then retype, you know? So that's one kind of answer to the question. But another kind of answer is the way I write is through images. Um, it also means that the pacing of of my work is, 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 is uh, the pacing is brisk. <laughs> what is that a pacing? A brisk pace. Um, but I want to note that other folks do need a different kind of space to write. So I have colleagues, very old colleagues, very close colleagues who, who in order to write, they really, they need to know that they have about three or four hours ahead of them. They have to know that no one's going to be interrupting them. You know, they need to be sealed in something. Now, sometimes they need to go to a cafe where it's loud and, and noisy, but they know no one's going to find them there. And so the pacing of their work, the, the number of units that come out are far less, but that doesn't mean they aren't thinking as deeply and as often as I am, it just means that the way they write needs to have a place in the world that can hold constant for them. Um, so, cause I always wonder what the, the question about how do, how do you write, right? I, I often wonder what's behind it. I mean, what is behind it for you when you ask me how, how it is that I write? All of your books seem to me to have such a clear style, such a clear voice, that I think I could pick up any of them and I would immediately know that it was you, even if I didn't know, um, the, if, if I didn't look at the cover or something, I would have a, a feeling that it was you. And so when it comes to your work specifically, I've always wondered how you wrote. And then when you wrote in the in this book that you were just typing on a Eurostar train, I, that surprised me. I thought you definitely had a specific ritual of how you write and how you put everything together. And... No, so, so interesting. I mean, the, 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 the arguments of the book are so loud in my head. Right. And that I carry them around. I mean, I just they they get carried around. I, I'm, I'm somewhere and I think, see, see, 
see, that's what I'm talking about, Beth. And it's like, stop talking to yourself. Um, and the, this, my, the, the, the mind I have been bequeathed is so obsessive um, that it doesn't matter where it is. I mean, it, 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 it crowds out, it can, it can crowd out everything. And that's a blessing and that's a curse obviously. Um, it's also the case that, and I've said this so many times, I, I'm, I, I'm a stereotype of my, my own, my words are a stereotype of my words. Um, I'm writing one long book. So, so the way I write versus how I write, I don't know if there's a difference here, but the the way I write is the way I argue, sorry, is to drive toward the place where nothing makes sense anymore. Right. So, so I don't drive toward an answer. I drive toward a question that can't be answered because to answer it would take moving to another axle to paraphrase Wittgenstein. So you know, or to paraphrase, I forget the poet now, <laughs> he's dead, one of our feminist poets, oh my God, I'm forgetting your name, I drive toward the wreck. <laughs> um, and thus, at the, the end of the books uh, don't end, they, they, they end with a problem that centered the exploration of that book and thus set the stage for the next book. And I think that might be why you hear a similar voice because there's only one question being examined. And, and in many ways, that question is a question of dispossession in the wake of, of Europe's colonial world. I mean, you know, and again, that the, the legacy of that, those dispossessions are both in my white family but my white family has to put be put in relation to um, the dispossession of indigenous worlds and black worlds for for you know reasons we can talk about. Yeah, I thought maybe we could start when with the book uh, directly with the title, right? Between Gaia and Ground, I think that's it, it captures the imagination so much. Could you explain for listeners what you mean by between Gaia and Ground? Yeah, uh, you know, it's, it has a nice rhythm to it. <laughs> I thought, between guy and ground, nothing to do with this book. I love the title. Um, no. You know, I spent a good part of my um, early career, definitely uh, the period I was at Chicago, which was between 1995 and 2005, um, as a member of the editorial collective of public culture, and then as one of its editors. And, and throughout that time, we saw emerge uh, the, the problematic of the global. So the local and the global, and then we got things like local, et cetera. Um, and behind the global, the local and the global was a scalar amount imaginary. Right. So you scale up from the local to the global. Um, at the same time, that conversation was going on. How do we think not the, and especially in anthropology, how do we not focus on the local? Then you scale local, national, global. Right. And then we had 
um, various uh, uh, spheres and et cetera. So the, the long conversation that came out of public culture and Arjun and, and others. Um, at the same time, there was a, a very robust uh, uh, conversation occurring around how we can reconceptualize circulation. So, so you had the local to the global, and then you had flows. You had the scalar, and ha- you had circulation. Um, and the folks who were working on circulation started thinking about circulation as not um, occurring in empty space, but in uh, in a, a sort of um, uh, a determining uh, space. That is, in order to enter a specific uh, uh, a circulation form, so you had to be formed in a particular way. So, in a, a simple and simple example. Uh, in order to enter into the flow of capital, you had to be formed as uh, as either you know the self possessive thing, uh, so something some something that can possess itself, possess others, or the object of a possessing thing, right? So, so you could enter into the the the, the logic of commodity circulation. Um, and thus we saw one of the strategies of the early colonial period was to shatter forms of kinship and relationality um, uh, that provided an alternative form for movements of things and et cetera. Right. So that's a really simple example. Um, so in the in the background to between guy and ground is this really long, much longer background of me trying to think. What, how do we think about what is this? What's the imaginary of of this of the scalar? What things that scale up or scale down in relation to um, these imaginaries of circulation, either as empty uh, empty space through which things go, or form space that demand of that which passes through it to conform to its logic. So, so that was sitting in the background, and then from say. Uh, geontologies to between guy and ground um, uh, between those two or you know in the background of these two is the emergence of um, uh, the concept of the Anthropocene right which once again we started right we started going like oh the Anthropocene the earth Gaia as this, as as the scale that we should be thinking the problem, the problem of climate collapse, of of toxic circulation, and et cetera, and and immediately everyone was rightfully critiquing it and saying, "Excuse me, the human and and Gaia is not the scale, or not the units of analysis in which with which we should be thinking." And um, and against that came um, uh, the problem of entanglement of of social form, like what social forms um, underpin uh, uh, toxicity and climate collapse. So so the title between guy and ground is to say that an analytic sits between 
um, the particular and the general or the specific and the universal or the ground in the Gaia or the local and the global. That is, how do we think about the determining um, forms that that capture the the movements of the dominant and the otherwise. So that's that's it's literally between these these two imaginaries. How do we re, re, rethink things? And and I should also say that for me at least, ontology as a claim about the existence of the all operates at the level of Gaia, right? And 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 projects as its not its opposite, but as its um, evidence particular things right the ground right so so for me it, it 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 in some in some poetic kind of way it 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 captured um both this much longer conversation um but also this newer one around um the anthropocene around ontology and etc and the the book has a, a beautifully long subtitle: Four Axioms of Existence and the Ancestral Catastrophe of Late Liberalism. So I thought it would be uh, nice to go through the subtitle, but backwards. So could you start with late liberalism? What do you mean by late liberalism? Uh, you know, I first oh, I should I should say first that when I was at Chicago. Um, Probably 1998, I could be wrong about this. There's a special issue of public culture that that was built around um, a workshop. Uh, the workshop's name being Late Liberalism. <laughs> and in the workshop were uh, our now deceased beloved, you know, Lauren Berlant, Michelle Rolf Trio, um, Elaine Hadley, myself, Patchen Markell, um, Candace Vogler, Michael Warner would come in and out. I think that was it. Might be, oh, Sabah Mahmoud, who also one of my beloved friends that we've lost. Um, so you can see, a really, like, <laughs> what a group. Um and all of us in our different ways were trying to think about the affects and the discourses and the politics of liberal worlds that seemed to be twisting themselves in a new way. Now, this was so, so think about, you know, I always think about Michel Foucault, who's writing his biopolitics the biopolitic lectures in the early 1970s, right? And he's trying to give an account of what's emerging all around him. Well, that's, it's actually almost impossible to give an account of what you're in, in, in which you're bathing. I mean, if you really, you're just breathing it, right? Um, because to give an account is in some ways to be able to back back away from or 
look back on or some kind of distance um, um, that would give you some purchase on on describing what it is. When when it is you, you are it. It's really quite hard. So that's what we we're trying to do. We we're trying to think, okay, what is what does this liberal moment consist of? And we called it late. We were saying, oh, let's, we'll, as a marker, we'll say late liberalism. Um, for, for, so, so I started using late liberalism as a indication of this conversation that we were having. And I, I think in economies of abandonment, I footnote that this is a conversation we're having. Um, in economies of abandonment, where I think I first used late liberalism, I made a distinction between late liberalism and neoliberalism that right after I published the economies of abandonment, I changed my mind about. So in late, in, in economies, I say, uh, late liberal, late liberalism refers to, um, a form of the governance of a difference that started emerging in the 1950s um, during the time that uh, that anti-colonial critique, um, including uh, critiques of white supremacy, uh, were being waged and were effectively being waged, right? So that these, these anti-colonial critiques and white, uh, anti-white supremacist critiques were saying, you're not colonizing us in order to for up, uplift. You're not. You're. This is not some beneficial paternalistic gesture on your part. Um, you're you're a great extraction machine that whose whose primary and really only concerned is your own um, uh, in wealthment, which is not really a word. Uh, so they're, they're ripping the, the, the paternalistic mask off of um, European uh, colonialism and imperialism. And, and so, so what I was interested in in Economies of Abandonment was uh, how liberalism, we could say colonial liberal or imperial liberalism, adjusted itself in order to conserve... Um, its legitimacy by the ruse of recognition, of liberal recognition, of saying, oh, woe is us. We did not intend to do such harm, but harm we did. And so now... We're all ears to hear about your pain and misery and how you who we harm. So uh, if you tell us how you are also human, we will make within ourselves a space for you. Right now, within ourselves, we will make a space. I.e., We will not be erased. We will not be toppled. We will not walk off our pedestal. We will make a space within ourselves for you. And, and that for me characterized from the, like the, that fifties where, where anti-colonial critique is really, it's like delegitimizing, not merely imperialism and colonialism, but liberalism itself, um, is, is this period in which liberalism 
twists in order to conserve itself. And then in economies, I say neoliberalism refers to a twist in the governance of the of markets, which starts occurring around the same time. So, but after after I publish the book, I say, you know what? I don't know why I'm making this different. Late liberalism for me signals a difference in the governance. Sorry, signals a a a a transformation of liberal governance of difference and liberal governance of markets that start occurring in the 1950s and um, uh, uh, really come to fruition in the in the late 70s and 80s, although, again, because I think in circulation, not in some kind of global blossoming, but rather a, 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 a movement of strategy, um, liberal strategy that takes roots in various ways in, in, in these liberal worlds. Um, and that, and I'll just, and that, by the time we're meeting in Chicago, Lauren and Michelle and Rolf and Elaine and um, and Candace and Patchen and Michael and Sabah, by the time we're meeting, we're feeling like something is up here. Something is giving way. Something, something, something's happening in which we felt a new contortion underway within liberalism. That's what, and by the time, honestly, by the time I'm writing Economies of Abandonment, and then definitely by the time Guy and Graham comes out, we're seeing the fruition of what I think we intuited. That is the collapse of markets in 2000, and when was it? 2008, and the rise of a bitter white symphony of dispossession, <laughs> you know, like, oh, woe is we were being replaced. It's like, what, what, what new white cultural counter-reformation is this? So I'm not sure we're in what I described as late liberalism anymore. That's what's weird is, is we might be from 2008, which is a long, wait, was 2008 when the great recession? No. Yeah, yeah. 18, 16, 15, how long was that ago? Yeah, it was 2008. 14 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, that's about, well, if you think about, if you think about 1950s to 1970s, then you have to go like 2008 to, to what? I mean, we are in that long stretch, which is a reshifting of affective, discursive, and political imaginaries. It don't happen on a dime, and they have this very uneven um, topology that we're, we're seeing. Oh, yeah. So anyways, late liberalism, uh, you know, it, if it's if it's a strange period, periodicity that I'm trying to I was trying to stretch out, we shouldn't assume we're still in that period. And what do you mean by ancestral catastrophe? Ancestral catastrophe is in the book in between guy and ground is 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 contrasted with coming catastrophe. So I I I say there there are these um, two frameworks in which uh, discourses about climate collapse and liberal toxicity um, are interpreted, and one frame is the ancestral catastrophe, and one frame is a coming catastrophe. Um, 
the coming catastrophe is is it, you we all we all hear this framework when people say it's coming on the horizon it's about a hit now now everyone says it's hit right but for a long time it was like it's coming it's coming the horizon is quote dark and you know it's all these racial imagines the climate is dark it's it's has a form of a tsunami it's 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 an event structure um, that has as its core a state change um, over the mountains, over the dale, over the hills and dales. Um, and it's disorienting to those who imagine the catastrophe in that way. Um, and in the book, I say those who are imagining it are those who have benefited from the ancestral catastrophe. So I'll get to the ancestral catastrophe in a sec. But for those who have benefited from the ancestral catastrophe, the the image of a coming catastrophe is 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 quite disorienting because the horizon is where liberalism, whether colonial liberalism or imperial liberalism or late liberalism, the horizon is where liberalism has always part it's truth, a truth that never actually comes, and is always a space of alibi for it. So liberalism can say, oh, we thought, and this is Habermas, right? But there, you, we, you know, we thought we were heading toward the horizon of the good, but now you, you've convinced us that we, we, we misunderstood what we were doing. And but now that we've heard you, we've changed the direction of our boats and the horizon. So the norm and the um, the good has changed. So so it's the horizon has always been an alibi for like you. Oh, it was the wrong one, and it's been where you could park truth. Oh, it's coming! It's coming! It's coming! Right. Um, so now the horizon. It's like there is no truth on the horizon. There's only like terribleness. Um, and, you know, I know a lot of actually friends who are, are disoriented. It's like, what, well, how do I live my life if there's not this coming better or coming true? Now, those are the people who, whether they meant to or not, um, uh, benefited, benefit from the ancestral catastrophe. And the ancestral catastro- catastrophe and I'm not the only one that has noted this. The ancestral catastrophe is a world dramatically remade by colonialism and, and enslavement. It is the world's, the ashes of worlds recycled into wealth. So, so all these forms of dispossession, the dispossession of black labor and life, the dispossession of indigenous lands and wealth, the dispossession of people from their analytics of belonging that don't fit within the framework of capital and, and white supremacy, all those forms of dispossession as a, as a, as a rolling, talk about a tsunami as a rolling tsunami, but also as teeny tiny small intensities and quasi events that have sedimented 
the ground that now is oozing out this toxic calamity, right? And so it's not coming over the horizon. It's just that those who benefited from the ancestral catastrophe have kept their toxic waste locked up in other lands, right? So, so again, in the book, I mean, the, the horror, horrific easy example is Brussels and Congo, right? So that you extract that which you think holds wealth, copper and other minerals, and you leave behind the tailings it took, the toxic tailings it took to get it, right? Or in the book, I, I note, and, and, and I'm really glad to see that at least in, say, the, uh, in public radio and even things like the Times and elsewhere, people reporting on this, uh, we're, we're seeing the same the, the, a repetition in our, in our green economy in which, right, in which we're going to save what, save who on the back of who are, and what. So, you know, in, in the U.S., in Australia, it's clear that the green economy has to be dug up, right? And so, say, you know, Cotterbing, or if you're sitting at Bellevue in Australia for, for the last three or four years, you know, we knew the, the, this market in rare earths and lithium was upon us. And, and we just south of the community, we, we, you know, we've been watching them begin to explore for lithium. Now they're, they've gotten their lease for it. Now they're beginning to dig for it. Um, at who, at whose lands get sacrificed for who and what, right? Um, and I can't remember even what we're talking about and why we're talking about it, but this we should be talking about. Oh, the ancestral catastrophe. Yeah. So it's just like these sedimentations on sedimentations. It's not coming across. It's coming out of. Um, and you do, when you sit in an ancestral catastrophe, when you, you're, you, you've borne the weight of this ancestral catastrophe as it's sedimented in your lands, in your bodies, right? Um, you listen in, I think, in a different way to the promise of a new horizon, right? So the green economy is the problem. Oh, no, we found a way to, to clean our horizon, right? And that's how our boats, you know, that's how our boats can be now pointed in the right direction. And it's like, and if you live in the bowels of the ancestral catastrophe, you, you think, oh, really? And and so it's the ships in the horizon again, eh? And then you just start looking around because you know they're coming. They're going to come. They're going to come once again at you. That's what I mean by ancestral catastrophe. So the subtitle is Four Axioms of Existence and the Ancestral Catastrophe of Late Liberalism. I think listeners now have a very good idea of what you mean by late liberalism and what you mean by ancestral catastrophe. Uh, can we get into the four axioms of existence? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I uh, the 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 um, the dynamic between the ancestral catastrophe and the coming catastrophe um, are matched in by the way I talk about these four axioms. So, anyways, uh, at the heart of the book, at the beginning of the book, when I started writing the book, it were it was these four axioms that I was most concerned with. 
Um, and it wasn't the axioms per se with which I was concerned, but rather a syntax I heard connecting them. That is the how they were ordered as if in a sentence. So I want to say that first. So it's not, you'll see that once you, once at least you'll see that for me, once I started trying to figure out what's up with the syntax, the axiom themselves start changing. But okay, so the four axioms of existence in the wake of G onto power. So, you know, I'm, and it's very cruel. I'm always saying, well, you know what I said in the last book? <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, continuing from that, I say, um, which is, it's, which is terrible. It's like, seriously, do you really have to read everything I write? No, you shouldn't have to. And thus in between and between guy and ground, I give you a glossary. So you don't have to read everything Pominelli ever read to understand what she's saying here. I hope it helps. <laughs> it does. Absolutely. Right, it good, does. Good. I just thought, come on, Beth, don't be, don't be one of those things that think, the world revolves only around you, even though you probably think it does. <laughs> Anyways, so the four axioms are, th- these are the four axioms, and I, I mean them, so, and in the wake of John Tavauer, so I'm saying as, as the division between life and non-life crumble as an explanatory framework that is don't doesn't function anymore as an axial proposition right so as jonto power stops being an axial proposition um, these four axioms of existence have gained more ground in uh, theoretical conversation conceptual concept work and i i i'm assuming that the axioms are kind of axiomatic in the sense that none of them are surprising. And I don't want to be surprising because I want to say we all increasingly think something like this, or a lot of us think something like this. So axiom one, existence is entangled or the entanglement of existence. I sometimes say um, uh, X demand existence. The point being that um, it, things are not tied together, but the objectness is in some ways a mirage of um, the way in which forces are entangled. So, so you don't have this and that. You have thisness and thatness because of the way in which um, uh, uh, existence has been knotted and, you know, Barad and others have talked about that. So the second one is because of the, because ontologically existence is characterized by entanglement, the way it's entangled distributes um, the, the social power to affect or be affected by the entanglement. So there's a first Axiom is an ontological claim. The second axiom is derivative of that, which is a social claim. So you derive the social from the ontological. The third is 
because of the way it's socially, the, the social forces of entanglement, that is, it is entangled, but then the social is the particular way it gets entangled. Um, political events, uh, what we mean by a political event has multiplied and collapsed. And so I say it's multiplied, the political event is multiplied in the sense that we no longer think of the political event as, as that which changes the structure of politics or, you know, in a Rancier sense, um, the difference between policing and politics, right? So it, it, you, you, you change the, um, the order of sense and the sensible um, versus you just maneuver in one order. That would be policing. So there's a lot of, you know, like I say quasi-event and others say, you know, the little event. Like there's all this language for these little Rob Nixon or Lawrence um, work or Sadia Hartman in, in, in her work. Um, and then, oh, and then it's also collapses in which we talk about intensities without events. So little things that n- n- are just so small, they don't even break the, the horizon of eventfulness, but they're, they can, they can either really hold your body together or they can just be the buzz that never allows you to quite settle. And, and the reason there's a multiplicity of events and the collapse of events is that depending on where you are in this, the, the, depending how the social has, has arranged the entanglement of existence, you could be somewhere where in this entanglement in which it feels like, whoa, something is really fundamentally altered, shifted, and be in another in which it's just the same old, like, screaming in my ears, right? And, uh, and the example about the new green economy is is like that, right? Oh, everything's new. Oh, here the, here comes the excavation machines. Um, the fourth axiom is um, that that our ontologies and epistemologies, the frameworks we use to construct ontologies and epistemologies, were brewed out of the black and brown and indigenous. Atlantic and Pacific, and thus um, are not exits from the problem, but part and parcel of the problem, right? And again, lots of folks, um, Denise de Silva, Sylvia Winter, other, I mean, there's tons of, tons of us, that, tons of people who are, okay. So I say, okay, these are the four axioms of existence. And, you know, you can kind of like, with, with Judith Butler's work, she's, what's really great about Judith is she's just very, very clear about what she's doing. So for her, like there's, you know, there's, um, there's ontological precarity. Um, and then there's the way in which the social organizes precarity unevenly. Um, there, you know, so there's a lot of models in which you start with ontology from that you derive so the social from the social derive the political and then from the political you somehow say, oh, history, right? And what the book is trying to say is like, time out. What are we doing here? <laughs> Why are we recapitulating the very thing in the fourth axiom we say is filled with history? Why do we start with ontology? That is, 
with a statement about existence, qua existence. What do we, what pleasures do we get from that? What reassurances do we get in that? What things are, what, what, what forms of political imaginary are we uh, reinforcing unintentionally when we do that? And not only that, but what, what's the excess that this ontological move gives us that the force axiom didn't already provide. That is, the fourth axiom is the way in which the world was entangled during this moment has sedimented not only a ontological, uh, the content to ontologies, and epistemologies, but also has sedimented the form of politics and a social imaginary. So you can unfold it, right? And some people say, "Well, I've, I've been, I've been told, well, that's just an ontology. That's history is ontology." And then I think, well, then we're just not using the word ontology in its philosophical sense anymore. And you know, unfortunately or fortunately, like I was brewed in. <laughs> Western accounts of its own philosophical unfolding, at, you know, at St. John's, and and so it's if we're if we're going to say anything in which you you stand is an ontology, well, I, I I just then fine, I don't even know what we mean by the word anymore. I'm really more concerned with with people who are really doing really careful work and asking all of us to 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 think like. What are we doing when we start with ontology? What are we doing when we evacuate history in the first instance in order to get to history? Why? Why are we doing that? And and that's 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 a question. <laughs> that's a question I have, and I have certain answers. And it's like we don't want to be like. And I, in the book, I talk about the difference between Deleuze and Watari, the way they. They open what is philosophy, and um, and Edouard Glissant, the way he opens poetics of relation, the the Deleuze and Guattari opening what is philosophy with the proper of various disciplines, let's say. So the proper of of philosophy should be concepts, and the proper of art should be affects, and and the proper of the sciences should be propositions and stuff. Um, and they're very compelling about the stakes of concepts migrating over into capitalism, right? And it's very compelling and very important. But, you know, Glissant, it's like, well, I'm going to start on in the hole of a, of a slave ship and, and write a poetics of relation that unfolds there. And, and, and with, with the problem being, how are you related to that hole of the ship? Not do you have sympathy or empathy for those or, you know, or, or are you the descendants of those? but, but are you the descendants of those? And thus how has the ancestral catastrophe sedimented into your body? Are you the descendants of those not necessarily like steering the ships, not necessarily already on Plymouth rock or wherever they could be back in my village in the Alps still, but how are you related, nevertheless, to the unfolding sedimentations of that catastrophe, right? Now, 
was Glissant trying to write an ontology? Well, I, you know, at that point, it's like, well, fine. If that's what we mean by ontology, fine. Let's write it and then use the word whichever way you want. But what he's really saying is sedimentations of relationality that are, that, that write history as, as, as a, a, a sinking in, right. And a, and a dividing out. How, how do we, how do we, right in the wake of Gionto power starting on those ships. And again, ships in the Atlantic, ships in the Pacific, ships you might've been on, ships you might've followed afterwards, you know, like that. So just to give our listeners a taste of the expansiveness of this book, we have only been talking about the title and we've already reached the end of the interview. <laughs> this book is spectacular. It's not a it's not a super long book and we haven't been able, we haven't gotten even to touching on so much that you get to in this book. It's really really uh, Cuz you uh, had eight questions, I think what did we have two questions? I had I had uh, a, a number of questions, yeah. That are, we're just going to have to delete, unfortunately. But uh, there is a tradition on the New Books Network that I do want to uphold before we uh, say goodbye, which is, uh, what are you working on now? Oh, um, yes. Uh, there, I'm working on two things. If that's okay to say, I mean, I'm, we're there. Actually, I'll, no, I'll say two things. I might get into two. Um, uh, the first thing I'm working on is, um, is a joint project with Cotterbank, um, which will have visual written and maybe filmic aspects to it, uh, that we're calling the two clans project and the two clans project, uh, after this discussion, you'll see how the two clans projects comes in the wake of everything we've been saying today. And what it what it'll do is follow my clans out of um, of Corzolo in the Alps and Cotterbin clans um, in in Australia, obviously um, through the emergence of the colonial world through late liberalism. So, so, you know, the, literally the emergence of Povinelli and Povinelli, like all, like many places in the region where we come from, the Povinelli's clan, uh, Povinelli family splits into clans. Um, and how they're affected by this the the this this revolution in uh, uh, freedom and enlightenment fueled from colonialism, and then how they being dispossessed of their country follow the roots of that dispossessed others right and and parallel what's happening with in Australia and then how we meet like that so that's one. Um, the other is this <laughs> really mad, 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 mad writing drawing project that I'm calling the Alice Henry book that honestly, I don't even know how to describe it. It, 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 
I don't even know how to describe it. It's, um, I don't know. I don't know what to say. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. Well, anyways, it'll come out. Wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> Such thick content and description. <laughs> the book is Between Guy and Ground, published in 2021 with Duke University Press. Professor Povanelli, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And thank everyone for listening.